welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast with me, Angie Mazzetti. This week's guest is Rachel Hussey, who's chair and country lead in Ireland with the 30% Club. Rachel is a partner with Arthur Cox and member of the Governing Authority in DCU, Dublin City University. Rachel believes that it's in the interests of business to foster and encourage the talent of all their employees. You know, if women get held back, everyone gets held back. And if women are let thrive, then everyone will thrive. I think we need to, I mean, that's a, it's a very positive thing. It isn't a negative thing for anybody. Forward-thinking companies who were already embracing flexible work practices, she says, really felt the benefit when COVID came along and turned the workplace upside down. Companies who were already focused on diversity were able to make that change very quickly because a lot of people who had agile working policies already were able to have their whole workforce working from home overnight, which clearly was no mean feat. Working from home has also lent credibility to the integrity and decency of staff, she believes. So I think the best thing about working from home is that it has busted the myth that people who are at home are messing. Everybody knows that that's absolutely not the case and everybody has worked incredibly hard. Rachel is a strong advocate for paternity leave and stresses how maternity and paternity leave are such a small chunk out of a long successful career. If you have a 40 year career, even two or three maternity leaves are only really an irrelevance in terms of the amount of time involved. And I think that's an important message. In the podcast, Rachel also talks about her passion for sustainability, the business case for greater inclusion and diversity in the workplace, and at an individual level, the importance of self-belief and coping with those moments of self-doubt that everyone goes through at some time. But we began by talking about the law and studying at Harvard Law School. So thank you very much for joining us on the Women in Leadership podcast. Rachel, tell me a little bit about yourself and your education. I know you have a very impressive CV and that you studied law in Trinity, but you've done an awful lot more than that. Tell us a little bit about your early life. Thanks, Angie. Thanks for inviting me here today. Uh, yes, I did study law in Trinity, which I loved every moment of. And then after I went to Trinity, I studied law at the King's Inns as well. So I was called to the bar. And then after that, I went and I had the great privilege and honour of doing a master's in, in Harvard Law School, which was really an incredible experience. I mean, it was very interesting from an educational perspective, but just from an experience and meeting so many people from all around the world, um, it was a really fantastic experience. And then I worked for a year in a law firm in New York and then I came back to Dublin and worked in another law firm in Dublin and then I joined Arthur Cox at the beginning of this century. So you're listed as one of the FT100 heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S, globally for your initiative Women in the Firm for Driving Gender Diversity and Leadership Opportunities for Women here in Arthur Cox. This was for an initiative uh, you began in 2009. So tell us a little bit about it. What was involved in that and what prompted you to do it in the beginning? Well, I think when you think that it's hard to believe it was 2009 and and it's also hard to believe that at the time it was quite a radical thing to do because um, gender diversity and all the issues around it are obviously on everybody's agenda now. But in 2009, it wasn't so much the case in the business community. I think the feminist movement was quite focused on social issues and there were issues around women in politics, but there didn't seem to be a big issue, issue around or a focus around women in business. Um, and I just had the sense that, that 
we needed to do something to try and em empower women. And I think it's a really important distinction, not about helping women, it's about empowering women. Um, and particularly, obviously, at the time, it was in, in the legal profession, but I think it's sort of, obviously, it's, it's mushroomed around the place into being much more about other businesses as well. So we, we just came together and met, the women partners here met together, and we kind of decided, was there anything we could do? And we introduced a number of initiatives around. We did mentoring with the women associates. We introduced maternity coaching. Um, so it was a really exciting thing to do. And in fairness, like the firm has been incredibly supportive of it from the get-go. And I, it's obviously developed substantially since then into a much broader diversity agenda. And now we have two diversity partners um, who lead out on, across a number of areas as well as gender. So it's, it's been fantastic to sort of witness the evolution and the progress. Uh, but it did all start back in 2009. Doesn't sound that far away ago, and it's been amazing the progress that's been made. I'm surprised you mentioned maternity coaching. I haven't heard that before. What does that involve? So maternity coaching is is there's an external you get an external coach who talks to the both the woman going out of maternity leave and the person or people that she works with, and you sort of agree ground rules and things like that, and they facilitate conversations that maybe people weren't so good at having before. So sometimes people who are in the business are afraid to contact people on maternity leave, whereas in fact they may, might want to be contacted. So it's about sort of agreeing ground rules and then you have another session just before you come back to the office to sort of enable that transition back. Um, so I think the feedback we've got has been really positive about the impact it's had on, on, people, on people's experience of maternity leave. It seems to be much better organised throughout the workforce now that there's that acceptance that it's, a, it's a, a time in your life that you take time out, but you like to get back in, I think, as well, particularly if somebody's spent a long time with their education and, you know, their professional career. You know, it is an important message to get across to women, isn't it, that there is a future for them after having babies? Absolutely. I mean, if you have a 40-year career, even two or three maternity leaves are only really an irrelevance in terms of the amount of time involved, and I think that's an important message. And I also think this kind of introduction of paternity leave is really important as well because I think one of the whole drivers behind all the movement around gender diversity is levelling the playing field and I think um, and I absolutely don't think gender diversity is about motherhood and maternity at all I think it's one of the issues but I think um, when men take leave as well I think it, it just levels at that playing field which is a really important aspect of it. I think it's something that men have been discovering uh, even I was talking to Joan Burton a few years ago and she was saying when they introduced better times and you know facilities for women TDs, uh, the men benefited hugely as well. They were able to take time out to go to school meetings and all that. So there's huge benefits for men there, but I think they probably need a bit more courage, do they, just to actually take their paternity leave? There wasn't a fashion for doing it for a while, was there? No, I think you're right, but I also think it's important that the leadership leads by example so we you know it's important that senior men take paternity leave as well and, and sort of role model it and, and reinforce the message that it, it's okay to take paternity leave and I think a lot of men are doing that you see it around I mean obviously Mark Zuckerberg is the the biggest example of that but I think it's a, you're right it's a cultural thing and I also think the the next generation the couple of generations behind us are much more um, expecting of men that men will be more involved than maybe that had been the case in the past so I think I think this is just a, an evolution on a number of levels which are all kind of positive and leading towards a, an improved situation for everyone as you say. You've also mentioned mentoring and coaching and other initiatives what would you say was the most successful um, thing that you tried? I think it's hard to pick one in particular like all of these things is sort of a little a little bit of progress in every respect I think that 
the feedback we get from, from the women associates was that having women partners talking about their own career journey was quite powerful because there's one thing hearing about an objectively somebody's career outside of a law firm or outside of professional services but when you actually hear from somebody who is living the same life as you are now living as a, at a more junior level I think that's very impactful and I think for women in particular the existence of role models and they don't have to be women they just have to be people that they can relate to is really important so I think if I had to pick out one thing I think that was probably the most impactful thing. I think the mentoring was very long term and in fact we have mentoring now across the firm with gender neutral mentoring so um, that that's a the long term impact but I think that hearing people's stories is like a lot of storytelling it's it's what resonates with people. It's amazing yeah. So you're you're I'm just going to move on to talk about the the 30% club because I know that you're chair and country lead for the steering committee of the 30% club Um, what does that involve for you? So the 30% Club, maybe just to explain to your listeners what it is, so the 30% Club is a movement that was started in the UK in 2010 with the ambition of having at least 30% of women on FTSE 100 boards. Um, it's now a global movement with 18 chapters around the world and the Irish chapter was founded in 2015 and um, our ambition is to have at least 30% of women on boards and in the C-suite. And it's very important to say it's at least 30%. It's definitely a floor and not a ceiling. Um, and the reason we're called the 30% Club, uh, some people say we should be called the 50% Club, and th- that's probably right. But 30% is the critical kind of number that people, for a minority or for people in the room, you have to, to have your own voice as an individual. There has to be 30% of people in the room. That's the reason it's called that. So um, it's very business-led, business-focused. We um, have a large number of chair and CEO supporters. We now n- nearly have 270 um, chair and CEO supporters that represent about 600,000 employees in Ireland. So it's, it's, it's fantastic to have got that kind of support. And what it means for me personally is that it gives me an opportunity to be involved in gender diversity issues more broadly than just outside than just in my current job and that's uh, you know I really enjoy that and meeting lots of people and um, I suppose spreading the word as well and, and and what I like about it most is it's very business focused um, which is really critical and, and I think we need to keep reminding people of the business case for this this isn't just a, a nice to have this is um, there's very serious business reasons for making sure that everybody gets promoted um, and that everybody has an equal opportunity so well, what is that business case so I think it's a multifaceted business case. I think that there's a lot of research out there that shows that if you have a diverse team, the team is more innovative. And clearly, particularly at this time with COVID, being innovative is a critical um, aspect of, of how agreeing and deciding how we're going to move into this next phase, whatever, whatever that may be. There's also, you know, the talk about this war on talent, war for talent. And obviously, if you, if you want to have the, the best people in your organisation, it, it would be a mistake to just be looking at one half of the population. So I think um, there's real opportunities there. And I think uh, you know, a lot of research, McKinsey and various other uh, organisations have done research to show it absolutely contributes to the bottom line. At the end of the day, that's what business is about. So it's and it's about diversity in the broader scale. I think what I've read is that if you get diversity in terms of gender, the other diversities tend to follow as well. So you get a much broader mix of ethnic and genders as well. Have you found that? Yeah, well, I think that that if you can crack gender, you can crack anything because I think the issues are complicated, but lots of other issues are complicated. But I think and there's talk about, you know, some of the other diversity focuses are minorities like women are not a minority. I think that's important to remember that. But I do think if if your organisation becomes more inclusive, 
and diverse. It's sort of it's nearly self perpetuating that that they it'd be welcoming of other people as well. So absolutely, I, I agree with that. And I think it's really important that it's not the focus isn't on just gender because I think it's it's about that diversity and even cognitive diversity and neurodiversity and it's just about having different people with different perspectives in the room, which is kind of inevitably going to lead to better decision making. Absolutely. Um, what about measurement? What role does measurement? Because it can be nice to have, as you said earlier on, and you can take all the boxes. But how do we know that any progress is getting made? Is it important to measure and who does the measuring within companies? What's the ideal? So I think it's really critical to have data because, you know, the, you can't be sort of a feeling that there's this is or we're making progress or this is going well. So I think it's really critical in all organisations to have a data a data set and to measure your baseline and then measure your progress and then you're in a much better position to judge what's working and what's not working and I think you need to do that data measurement at all different levels and, and even in terms of the profile of the people you're hiring the people you're promoting it, and, and keep that data and measure it on a frequent basis probably annually and I think just in terms of the world at large I think that that data piece is equally important so things around the percentage of women on boards you know, we will never be able to gauge progress unless unless we measure that. And that's what Balance for Better Business has done in the last three years, which has been fantastic just to see. I mean, the dial is moving, but it's slowly, but it is moving. And I think in the absence of data, um, you're kind of fishing in the dark in a way. Is it part of this, I keep hearing this phrase, ESG, uh, environment, social and governance, is having uh, better gender diversity, is that part of ESG? Is it, is it become part of the legal process of running a company? So I think the ESG agenda is really interesting because I think that it started off when people started talking about ESG, everyone thought it was just the environment and, and climate change. But the S and the G clearly are social and governance and, and diversity, I think, is a key part of that. So I think ESG is an umbrella sort of title if you like for all of the above because frankly you can't be sustainable it's about sustainable business and you can't be sustainable if you're not diverse so I think it's a really important consideration for, for companies not only the climate aspect of things and the sustainability in a broader sense but the, but the diversity I think is a key part of that and I think business are is kind of it's an evolving process but I think you know business are, are beginning to kind of understand that and, and then obviously the regulators and various government um, initiatives as well. It's hard It's hard to ignore it at this stage. Absolutely. I know that the 30% club believe that men have to be involved in the empowerment and leadership of women at senior roles and at board level. Do you think more men are coming around? I mean, you alluded to it there a little while ago, but do you find more men are coming around to the idea that balance is really better for business and for themselves even in the workplace? Or is there still a bit of resistance there? I think, I think it's becoming less popular to vocally say or to admit that you're resisting I'm sure there are some people who are still resisting but I think there's this wave of positivity around diversity now and I do think that back to the business case I think that that if people focus on the business case it is definitely good for business and then you have external stakeholders and companies who who are like the investor community and Goldman Sachs saying they're only going to invest in companies that have one diverse board member and leading to two I think ultimately um, and then, you know, clients and uh, professional services firms asking the same question. So I think there's a, a general movement. Um, I also think it's really important to remember this isn't a zero-sum game. We're not saying let's promote the women at the expense of the men. I mean, a, a, riding, a rising tide lifts all boats. So I think, you know, if women get held back, everyone gets held back. And if women are let thrive, then everyone will thrive. I think we need to, I mean, that's a, it's a very positive thing. It isn't a negative thing for anybody. 
I think in some quarters, though, it's seen as that. But, you know, they, they see that women are taking more of the cake. But I think someone else explained it to me. It's like, and it's a very female analogy, I know, but it's like growing the cake bigger. <laughs> well, I think that's exactly the point. So, and, you know, again, there's research that shows if we had more women in the workforce, the GDP of all these countries would increase by some astronomic number. So I think it is good for, it is good for everybody and we just need need to focus on that. But I back to your point about men, men are critical in this. I mean, th- there's no point in women sitting around talking to each other about it. I, I think that men are really important allies in this. And, you know, as it happens, men came to the workplace first. So a lot of the rules in the workplaces are, you know, male-led and there, there are more men in the workplace. So unless we have men on board and men who are prepared to speak up and, you know, empower women in their midst and, and be that allies, as you say, um, I think that's really important. Some people call the men the champions, but I don't really like that title because I think that implies that it's something kind of unusual and it's something kind of super special, whereas this should be just day to day, actually. Sustainability. I know that you're involved in the sustainability um, group. What, what is your role in, in leading that out here in Arthur Cox? So at the moment, I chair our Sustainable Business Committee. And again, that's been an evolution. Um, it started off like it did in a lot of companies being kind of CSR and focus on giving back. And that's really the overall aim here is to give back and to recognise the privileged position we do have. Um, in business and, and the importance of giving back to the community across we work across a, a number of pillars so we have pro bono work as a key part of it volunteering um, the environment and then we have we select charity partners every two or three years and the, and the staff pick the charities that we're going to support so um, we do have a lovely heritage here where Arthur Cox who founded the firm um, he was a great philanthropist and so we have that 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 very nice heritage but um, no more than the ESG we were talking about earlier I think that whole kind of the importance of, of sustainability and and sort of doing the doing business doing business responsibly has become even more important in recent years and in fact this summer we're going to produce our first ever impact report which um, I'm really looking forward to because it is going to try and back to the data try and measure the impact that we're having and then kind of work work on building that out um, in years to come um, when when people think of sustainability, I think you mentioned it earlier, they think of the environment and all that. Does that come into it? Like, how do you, do you use disposable cups or, you know, does it, does it peter down to the granular level? Absolutely, because, I mean, I think, again, we all used to think that the climate change and everything was a governmental responsibility, but in fact, it's everybody's responsibility on an individual level. So the big focus in the environment, and particularly in the last year, where we, we announced in March that we're going to be carbon neutral this year and then we're aiming for carbon ne- negativity by 2025. And um, we've already really made huge strides in terms of becoming paperless because clearly as a big professional services organisation, paper was a big focus, but now we way more frequently work on screens. And um, this building that we're in is very um, lead compliant and it's a green building, so it's, it's all... And that they were really important considerations for us. So I think it's really important for everybody to do their bit and just to answer on the cups. So before the pandemic, we had replaced all our disposable cups with um, ceramic cups. But now people aren't really in the office at the moment because we're all working from home. So, But when, when things get back to normal, whenever that may be, or back to whatever the next normal is, I, I'm sure we'll be back to the ceramic cups if the guidelines permit that it's a big mental flip going from paper which you can actually feel and touch and trust to going to the digital format was that difficult for people to take on board mentally 
Um, I think maybe, and I, for some older people, and I don't, I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but people who had had more experience of working with paper, maybe it was a bit of a challenge. But I do think, sort of, a lot of our younger associates and trainees, that the way they've grown up is with screens, and and even in college and things that they would be working on laptops and not just taking notes manually. So I think there was a mi- mixed experience, but I think everyone realizes that, um, and even in terms of working collaboratively, have having things stored centrally and um, that everyone can have a look at if they need to on a particular case is is you know it's in everybody's interest and it's a better way to work so I think it was a bit of a challenge like a lot of things are changes it can be challenging but I think um, everyone realizes it was absolutely the right thing to do. It's been amazing the way people have been able to despite the awfulness of COVID people it has forced people to think in new ways and stimulated people to work in new ways probably something that would have taken 10 years to happen is now happening particularly the working from home do you think the working from home aspect has been particularly beneficial for women so i think it's been beneficial for everyone i don't think we should make it about being about women because my fear is that if it's a if it's just for women then where where does it lead to next so i think the best thing about working from home is that it has busted the myth that people who are at home are messing. Everybody knows that that's absolutely not the case and everybody has worked incredibly hard. For those who've had the privilege of being able to work from home, uh, you know, it, it, it is definitely very intense and there's a, you know, it, it, you're, anyway, at the end of the day, you're not messing. And I do think that companies who were already focused on diversity were able to make that change very quickly because a lot of people who had agile working policies already were able to have their whole workforce working from home overnight which clearly was no mean feat um, I think it helped them I think that we should be very careful about judging the pandemic as being any sort of judge of what it might be like without a pandemic so I think uh, you know, I think it's we were working at home during a crisis, so we were at home in a crisis trying to work, and I think that's an important distinction. A lot of people who have children, their children weren't at school. That's not a kind of normal workday situation. So, you know, as we come out of this, and hopefully we are, I think it's you know the children hopefully will be at school. So I think we just need to be careful what we're judging and how we judge it. So I think it 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 was very challenging for a lot of people, men and women, doing homeschooling if they had children. I think working from home doesn't suit everybody. I think we all miss the collegiality and the collaboration in the office. Um, but I think it's it was good for everyone. And I think maintaining an element of it and taking the good parts of COVID with us into the future will also be good for everyone. I think there'll be long-term lessons. I remember my husband's grandmother, she lived to be 100 and she was born in 1893, so... 1993 she died but she used to warn me when the kids were small she says, don't let them go into supermarkets don't let them touch this and that either but she had living memory of the 1917 pandemic the spanish flu so i think there'll be long-term lessons in this we won't be able to help just being extra careful with the washing of the hands and the distancing so i think there'll probably be some uh, long-term effects like that do you think there will be i think it's inevitable and i think i mean if this had lasted for the two weeks we thought it was going to last for when we first went home in march of last year that's one thing but i think it has gone on for as long as it has and i think that's enough to kind of change a lot of people's attitudes and i think you're right you know i think there'll be a slight reticence and we, we are so used to doing the hand washing and the mask and everything and you know w- will people ever feel i mean i sometimes think you know you see footage of you know packed concerts and things like that and I know there have been a few concerts abroad and and some here socially distant but just can't really envisage going to a big kind of packed arena and no masks and no nothing it just seems it feels a bit wrong 
but but then who knows I think it's very hard to judge what will happen but I think it's inevitable that there will be kind of cultural shifts definitely I can physically shrink when I see them <laughs> happening like that. It's true. So just before we wind up, I'd love to ask you about your pearls of wisdom now from all your experience working um, and your involvement with the 30% Club and your experience here. Um, what would you say your five pearls of wisdom might be? Well, I'm happy to say what my five pearls of wisdom might be but I'm and I wish I lived by them myself all the time but if I was uh, imparting pearls of wisdom to others the first one I would say is back yourself because I think um people sometimes aren't great at backing themselves and and kind of sometimes expect other people to do that and you kind of realize over the years that that you have to own it yourself and you have to back yourself and um, I think that involves a lot of things around not listening to voices in your head that may be saying, you know, I'm not, I shouldn't be here and things like that. You just have to kind of burst through that and ignore those. And just remember everybody feels like that from time to time. And that sometimes it, it's usually a temporary thing and that it will pass and it doesn't mean that you're not confident and it doesn't mean anything, just kind of keep going. And then the other thing I would say is invest in yourself. And by that I mean, you know, don't, give too much of yourself to everybody else mind yourself as well and you know if you do get an opportunity to have a mentor or a sponsor go for it and and even seek them out if you're in a work situation do seek out people who because people like to help and they like to be asked and then I also think if you can you know if you're offered an opportunity of having a coach I think that's a really important um, element of success uh, because I think it's just having that objective kind of words of wisdom person is, is a really important thing um, and I think, again, it's, it's about focusing on your self-worth. I think that's a really important, a really important point. Um, and the other thing is, I think, is be brave and, you know, take opportunities, even if it feels scary, just do it anyway. And, you know, don't don't miss out on opportunities because you feel you can't do it. And, and it's, I sound like I'm kind of trying to say to everyone to be brave and confident. I, I, it's really just methods to operate on a day-to-day basis that that keep remember that you are very good at what you do and if you're in an organization you're there for a reason and just go for it fantastic great words of advice there (laughs) um i love that phrase back yourself it's so important and also what you said there about invest in yourself do you think it's also very important to invest in your education your continuous education Absolutely, and I really do. And that's on the thirty percent club. We have the a mentoring, the form mentoring, but the scholarships we have are really critical, and it's fantastic. All the universities have supported us by providing scholarships, and um, which has been brilliant for supporting the women who actually do those courses. But what's really important is it sends the message out, which is that you need to keep investing in yourself from an education perspective, and particularly executive education. I think you know, particularly we're all in careers for so long. And the world changes and, you know, it just gives you that extra lease of life. And even getting out of your comfort zone and learning new things is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And you learn from so many other people when you network and they connect you with with others as well, like-minded people. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the drawbacks of COVID is that we haven't been able to sit in rooms with people and get to know them. Um, But Zoom is not quite the same. Tell me, what's the best bit of financial advice that you ever got? <laughs> well, I haven't actually had much much financial advice, and I think the one piece of advice that I did get, which is quite boring, but is actually true, and you only realise it when you get a bit older, is start your pension early. I mean, you know, people 
And I was the same. You can think, well, sure, like, what would you need a pension for? But I do genuinely think if you can do little bits of when early on, it makes a huge difference. And I do think we, we, we have heard all that stats about women in particular not having a pension for themselves. And I think um, it's really important to, to look after yourself in that way. So start your pension early. Good one. Um, sustainability. We talked a little bit about sustainability there. How do you put uh, your own sustainability beliefs into practice in your own life? So I do try, get back to what I said about it's everybody's responsibility. So I actually have an electric car, which I I got as a sort of thought, oh, yeah, this will be interesting. But as I have it, I've only had it for about a year, but I you become so aware of the fact that there are no emissions from this car and, and that there are so many emissions from other cars. So I think that's my biggest kind of jump into into sustainability. Um, we do a lot of recycling. I've got, I have uh, four children, and, and whenever on closed levels and things like that, we do kind of try and recycle everything in the house. So we're very focused on recycling, and I think um, even that generation, they're they're very focused on it as well. So you can't be getting um, plastic bags in the supermarket and, and and things like that. And then we eat less red meat as well. We eat a lot less meat than we did, and in fact, three of the children are vegetarian. So. Um, so again it's a baby steps anything small you can do I think makes a difference and we just need to all remember it's our own individual responsibility well done well done um, music do you like music what's your go to piece of music I, I actually really do like music and it's funny because when the children were small and I was so busy I didn't really get I've a lot of time to listen to music and I was never really on my own to listen to the music I wanted to listen to you end up listening to lots of other people's music but I do really like music and I love going to concerts as well. Um, and I, it's funny, the other day I got, you get a kind of notification from Spotify of the, the music that you listen to the most often. And I was actually giggling to myself thinking, just the titles of the song. So there's a hosier song called Nina Cried Power and that's one of them that I listen to quite a lot. And then the other one is um, Stormzy Own It. And I suppose I was thinking there's kind of a message there about you know power and owning things, but that's kind of... It was subconscious, but when I look back at it, I kind of realised that maybe that's what those messages meant to me. Music does connect people that way, though, doesn't it, really? Yeah. Very, very powerfully. Um, are there any quotes that you hold dear? I don't mean you to have it up on your wall now at home or anything, or you could do, but is there any quote that you've read somewhere, maybe a piece of poetry or something that really rings true to you? Um, there's one recently, and it's a little bit morbid, but I think it's true. Sometimes I you hear people saying, "Oh, I'm getting so old," and you know it's, it's, it's terrible. But so the quote that I read recently, which resonated with me, um, for various reasons, is that, you know, don't regret growing old because it's a privilege denied to many. And that's just I think that's really important to remember in your day to day life, and that you know we we're all privileged to be here and doing whatever you can while you're here is really important. Thank you so much. That was very inspiring, a lovely way to end the interview. So, Rachel, thank you very much for doing the Women in Leadership podcast. Thank you very much, Angie. And my thanks to my guest, Rachel Hussey, partner at Arthur Cox and country lead of the 30% Club, making a solid case for diversity and inclusion in the workplace, how it benefits everyone and is good for the bottom line. That's all from this episode. You can get in touch with us via the website womeninleadership.ie. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and on Twitter at leadingwomenpod. And you can email us on info at womeninleadership.ie. Until the next time, goodbye from me, Angie Mazzetti, and all on the Women in Leadership podcast team. Mm-hmm.